Hello, everyone, and welcome to our monthly podcast entitled More Hawkish Central Banks. It is the 12th of July. My name is Lorna Denny, and I'm joined today by Niall MacDonald and Alex Byrne. As we enter the dog days of summer, markets are struggling to find conviction, overshadowed by the increasing possibility of recession. Meanwhile, core inflation remains sticky and labour markets are still tight. Western central banks are leaving little doubt as to their intentions and further hikes look likely before interest rates eventually plateau. Today, we look at implications for financial markets and outline our latest tactical asset allocation moves. Niall, if you could please set the scene for us, how did markets end the first half of the year? Good morning, Lorna. Well, 2023 has certainly surprised most investors with most main asset classes indices ending in positive territory for the first half of the year. So the MSCI world was up close to 13% and Japan was the standout performer, finishing up 24%. US also outperformed at a regional level. This was up close to 15%. Emerging markets struggled, however, after a strong start to the year as the positive sentiment from China's reopening really failed to materialise to drive the economy and the stock market higher. But looking under the hood of the index returns, there has been quite a dispersion at a sector level. So in the US, for example, the year's performance has really been characterised by an AI and technology rally. So NVIDIA, for example, a maker of chips essential for AI, has been up some 190% year to date. And the top 10 stocks in the S&P 500 were really the key drivers of this performance. So when you remove these from the index, even as far as May, the index was actually in negative territory. So really has been a very thinly led market rally with a high level of dispersion of performance and the large mega tech names really being the standout drivers of the rally. Bonds also produce positive returns. So rates rallied strongly in the first quarter of, of the year with expectations of a Fed pivot. However, this is completely reversed in the second quarter as more hawkish rhetoric from central banks, primarily related to inflation, have pushed interest rates back up and bond prices down. So the US 10-year, for example, finished the first half of the year at 19 bips higher, close to 4%. But despite this volatility, credit spreads tightened and the additional yield that bonds now have from higher interest rates helped to produce positive returns. In commodities, the BCOM index of broad-based commodity exposure was down some 10% year-to-date. So over the second quarter, all three sub sectors were negative. Metal attracting the most, driven by gold, aluminium and copper. Gold was really hurt by rising real yields, which were up 47 basis points over the quarter. But there has been some bright spots in agriculture where soybean was up post a surprise from the US government, showing a decrease of 5% in soybean planting. So really a lot of the commodity-led price inflation that we've seen last year post the Ukraine uh, invasion by Russia has largely been dissipated. That's really useful context. Thank you, Nara. As I mentioned earlier, it's the Western central banks that have become markedly more hawkish in recent weeks. Perhaps we could explore the target of this renewed policy focus just a little further. Yes. Well, globally, central banks have been aggressively hiking interest rates to cool down the economy and purge inflation from the system. However, despite the Federal Reserve in the US going on the fastest rate hiking cycle in its history, the economic data continues to remain strong. Unemployment is low, wage inflation was going up, and there's been quite a tight labour market. So the Fed needs to see economic contraction, basically people having less money in their pockets to spend, and this should cool the inflationary impulses the global economy has been experiencing. So ISM services PMIs are still in expansionary data and actually recently surprised to the upside. Core inflation has been coming down, but arguably at its stickiest level now. And this is where getting from levels of just over 4% down to the Fed's target of 2%. 
So at the June FOMC meeting, Chairman Powell did take a pause in another hike, but indicated that he felt it was two more hikes were needed to cool off inflation. The robust economic data continues to give the Fed more ammunition to combat inflation with interest rate hikes. It was only very recently, though, that markets were trimming back their forecasts for a peak or terminal interest rate. What has really changed in the meantime? I feel that maybe we've lived through an environment since the GFC where the Federal Reserve has always been quick to begin easing monetary policy to stoke the economy, arguably because we've had been going through structurally low levels of inflation. Market participants could arguably condition to this and live under the pretense that good times of easy money will be coming back at any second. We have seen the pricing in US interest rate futures jackknife. So for example, at the beginning of the year, there was a price in for three cuts in the second half of 2023 to reversing to not having any cuts price in an additional uh, hike priced into the second half of 2024. However, I do think that we are close to peak levels of interest rates in the US. We will in all likelihood see a 25 basis point hike in July, and the Fed has indicated that they will be data dependent. So they really want to see the hard numbers of inflation getting close to target and economic data cooling off. So as interest rates do approach their peak then, and it will come either sooner or later, could this be a bullish sign for fixed income markets? Well, for me, it's hard not to get excited about fixed income at these yield levels. High yield bonds yielding close to 8%, hard currency emerging market debt at similar levels. These yield levels have previously produced multi-year periods of strong returns for bond markets. Bonds are definitely back and investors should be mindful of the attractive opportunity set that fixed income is offering. A balanced portfolio of bonds could deliver high single digit returns for this year and next. Good to hear your enthusiasm there, Niall. But if we can turn to Alex and Europe, The president of the European Central Bank said recently we cannot declare victory yet when it comes to inflation. And Christine Lagarde has been unusually transparent in her determination to raise rates further. Well, forecasts from the market and even from the ECB itself seem to suggest how difficult the job they have may be. The ECB's most recent forecasts increases their outlook for inflation. They're now expecting that we move from 5.4% currently to 3% in 2024 and 2.2% in 2025. Although it's continuing to decrease recently, the pace has certainly decelerated and the breadth of the inflation sources are worryingly wide. Moving forward, inflation's decrease is dependent on base effects, lower energy prices and easing pipeline pressures. That energy deflationary factor only coming in the more late part of 2024 as the phasing out of some government subsidies occurs. The makeup of food inflation also is more sticky. Those decreases being tempered by increasing profit margins, increased labour costs and also weather effects. And then within wages themselves, we aren't at US levels and it's unlikely we ever will be in Europe, but wages are increasing. And they're nearly now in line with current inflation, which could be dangerous. The labour market is tight. Inflation compensation has had some effect on this and increases in minimum wages have occurred, bringing overall wage inflation to 5.3 in 2023, looking to be 4.5 in 2024 and 3.9 in 25. Now, although high wages are obviously a good thing, the effect that that has is it creates a self-fulfilling inflation cycle, which is much more of an issue to reduce. For GDP, ECB sees 0.9% in 2023, 1.5% in 2024. So that expectedly weak growth is coming through. The current deposit rate of 3.5% at the ECB, with forecasts looking at this to be 4 by the end of the year, and then 3.25 at the end of next year, implying that there's two increases to happen in July and the autumn before the corresponding reductions next year. The ECB's growing problem, therefore, is balancing decelerating inflation reduction with softening economic data. 
So there is a peak, not near term, but certainly in sight for interest rates. But we have a very clear contrast to the rhetoric we're hearing from the ECB in Japan. We've said this before, but the new governor of the Bank of Japan appears almost to be on autopilot. He's still very much committed to his dovish stance. Have you spotted any early hints of a shift from ultra-loose monetary policy in Japan? Yeah, you're right with this viewpoint, but it's important to remember that prior to the new governor Ueda's arrival in April, there was a shock in December when the previous governor Kuroda surprised markets and engaged in the first hawkish, in, in inverted quotation marks, step of the Bank of Japan by widening the range of the yield curve control. And that's something that was expected to happen only after the governor had changed. As a reminder, the yield curve control is the range to which the BOJ will allow the yield on the Japanese government bond, specifically 10-year, to trade. The idea is to fix that shape of the curve with short debt already being negative. And targeting the yield curve is something that was done as quantitative easing had already reached its perceived limits. Obviously, the problem here is that there's a clear distortion in the markets because of the BOJ's involvement. Now, the BOJ's actions must be seen from a very different context to which Japan has come from versus the US, Europe, and any other economy globally. They had anemic growth and inflation for decades, even after 10 years of the biggest stimulus policies in history. So choking out the inflation this of sorts of desperately to instill is not something they want to risk. They need to have this inflation be structural. It needs to come through into wages and it needs to be sustainable. It's also important to note that we haven't seen the same high levels of inflation and the same sources of inflation in Japan as we have elsewhere, with inflation currently hovering around 4%. So assuming that an adjustment of policy will come, what would be the likely timing of that adjustment? Our expectation is that the next hawkish, in quotation marks again, step will be a further change in the yield curve control. This could be done a number of ways. The range could be widened. It could be removed completely or the duration of debt could be changed, all of which have the same effect. And it goes some way to having the market operate somewhere closer to normal. We believe there's reasonable potential for this to happen before the end of the year, but the pressure that the BOJ was feeling last year has dissipated significantly now. We don't believe we'll see interest rate rises soon or anywhere near the same extent as we have seen in Western economies. So dovish policy largely continues in Japan, and that has an impact on the currency markets, of course, particularly when the contrast with the Fed or the European Central Bank is so stark. It does, and it's something that we continue to see. So just for context, the Japanese yen year-to-date is down nearly 10% in euro terms, 7% in USD terms, so it's not a new phenomenon. If we look at three years, it's down 22% against the euro and down 24% against USD. So the divergence that we've had in Fed and ECB and BOJ actions is clearly showing through in the currency market. The yield curve control that we've had tries to minimise that effect, but the huge QE that we've had means that this has been somewhat structural. It's support exporters, but they have been offsetting negatives in importing. And now the ongoing divergence between the Fed and the ECB policy means this relationship is only going to go one way. That's what makes that first part of the inflection point from the BOJ so important. It'll dictate the direction going forward. For China, the RMB has been off 4% versus euro and 2% versus USD in June alone, adding to that overall year-to-date weakness. For the RMB, China's fiscal policy and monetary policy haven't been restrictive in any attempt trying to solve their own problems. If anything, they are starting to loosen again and stimulate as data and growth softens after that disappointing rebound out of the COVID lockdown. Currency weakness very much an Asian phenomenon, it seems, just at the moment. Could you, Alex, perhaps just give us a few words to wrap up your contribution on the second quarter reporting season, and that's just about to kick off in the US? 
Yeah, of course. The consensus for Q2 expects a negative 9% year-on-year decline in S&P 500, mainly because of the lack of growth in sales, as well as margin pressures, which are beginning to impact now. So that's obviously a knock-on effect of those increased input costs from inflation. Negative earnings per share revisions we've seen on earnings year-to-date seem to have bottomed somewhat for 2023 and 2024 as a whole. The key focus this quarter, given the economic developments we've seen, will be firstly the condition of the US consumer. The consumer comes for about three quarters of activity in the US market, and their strength alongside the labor robustness has been key to the lessening of the recessionary risk thus far. In addition, given the growing higher for longer rhetoric, alongside lasting difficulties for banks, looking at the impact on credit and lending businesses will also be interesting, and expect to hear a lot of talk about how companies will be using AI going forward with all the furore that we've had over the last quarter. Yes, we're certainly looking at any commentary on that. In response then, Niall, to this recent uncertainty over market direction, what adjustments have we made to our tactical asset allocation? Well, Lorna, within equities, we remain neutral overall. Nevertheless, we see more material outperformance from U.S. equities versus Eurozone equities in the near future. The differential between U.S. and Eurozone in terms of growth, more sluggish being in the Eurozone. Monetary policy, probably more ECB rate hikes to come. And equity style, U.S. market having more growth and less cyclical slash value exposure should benefit U.S. equities in our view. And then in fixed income, just to echo my earlier comments, we remain moderate overweight in investment grade credit and EMD, where attractive levels of credit spreads and yields remain and performance is improving relative to governments. We do remain moderate underweight on euro rate as the ECB remains on the back foot in the fight against inflation. Rate hikes could be higher than expected by the money markets. Thank you both very much indeed. Thank you, Lorna. Thank you, Lorna.